Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosofsky. I'm here with Courtney Small, my favorite co-host and my favorite critic. Hello, how are you today? Good, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. So on today's show, we are going to talk about the Human Rights Watch Film Festival that TIFF and the Human Rights Watch are putting on. It's the 16th annual festival. And it's happening April 3rd to the 10th at the TIFF Lightbox. It features seven films from nine countries spanning all over the world. Four of the seven films were directed or co-directed by women. And we have, you know, four films that we want to talk about. So let's get into it right away, Courtney. Sounds good. Okay, first one called No Box For Me, an intersex story. It's directed by Florian Devine, and it's from France. It's showing on Friday, April the 5th. Now, it's the story of a woman who was born intersex, and her parents and the doctors made a decision that she would grow up as a girl. So appropriate operations and drugs and things like that started happening throughout her life. Now, as an adult, she is studying at a university. She's studying uh, about intersex, and she's writing a dissertation. And in the course of the dissertation, she has decided to reach out to some people and to talk to them for the purposes of the dissertation, but also she ends up finding out that it's such a relief to finally speak to someone who really, really understand, understands what she's been going through, understands how she's been feeling, because, you know, at the center of it all, she feels like someone else decided her identity and that the two things are very much tied together. And um, it's a struggle for her. It's a struggle to understand. And she's had all these feelings and she's never had a chance to really talk about them. So intellectually, she gets to to deal with it. You know, in school, uh, she's got a really interesting professor who is, you know, guiding her through it as well, who has very deliberate and very concrete notions of his own about the whole uh, intersex issue and what to do and what was done before and about the past, the present, but also we get this intimate look at her own life. And through talking to these individuals, we get interesting personal and intimate insight into how each one is dealing with it. And that reflects back on how she's dealing with it. So we get to know her really well. And uh, there's a particular individual called M who doesn't want to reveal her name, doesn't really want to meet with her. She's not at all happy. She doesn't accept herself and is really, really struggling. Any depictions we see of her are animated. The film uses animation in a really interesting way to sort of give us a background on the the main individual that we're following, but also then uses animation to depict her in a way that doesn't have a gender it's a it's a really unusual and and really touching you know i found it was really touching in the way that it illuminated further how this person doesn't really feel like they belong in any classification and i i really appreciate the film for the way that it brings us close to people it really you know personalizes the issue 
I really re- admired the precision of the the film. It's it's not too long for me. I feel like I kind of wish this film was was longer. Uh, I I enjoyed it as well. It's it, it opened my eyes to a lot of issues that I didn't really I hadn't really thought of in depth before, especially when it comes to intersect. And I think the it raises a lot of interesting moral questions in regards of who has the right to choose because a lot of the individuals we're meeting had the choice made for them by their parents when they were young and we see the amount of surgeries that they have to endure to to look a certain way in society mm-hmm. but yeah. when it comes to M I found the use of a- animation for M kind of haunting because she's essentially like this ghostly form who we we see glimpses of towards the end we kind of get a sense of what she looks like but for most of the film you're you're just seeing this mass moving around and a person who is so you know ashamed of herself and her or at least the way how her body looks that she can't even look at herself when she's in the shower you know and it was a really really kind of haunting it's interesting they use the word haunting uh, for the depiction of and isn't it actually significant that the the individual who cannot look at herself we cannot look at her either but also it's in the in the depiction of this individual as neither male or female that is i find that significant and yeah haunting like you said because there is no way for society the way it's structured now for for us in terms of so-called societal norms that we are surrounded by there's no way for us to see m and so therefore we don't yeah and it also kind of challenges to rethink our, our perception of people because we can't truly see the, or who M really is and in many ways the, the individuals that we do meet uh, Daphne, Edward, what have you all the various intersex individuals we only really see their um, exterior like for some of them they, they're comfortable in whatever choices the parents had made for them but several of them we see them one way we either see them as male or female externally but internally they they often talk about how how torn they feel like how they don't necessarily feel the way that they actually look and i found that kind of fascinating as well in terms of like how in many ways perception is forced on people for the benefit of others but those who have to endure it don't get that luxury of 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 living the the carefree life like there's they still have that inner turmoil that they're dealing with yeah and i think the film is is incredibly strong in that way, in in the way that it, it gives us all of that. Yeah, so that is uh, a film called No Box for Me, an intersex story, and it's playing on Friday, April the 5th. Uh, the next film that we're going to talk about is called The Cleaners, and it was at Sundance, so you may have heard about it. It won also a the pre-Europa. It's by Hans Block and Moritz Reiswick. It's a German-Brazilian co-production, and it's about it's a it's a film about how companies, corporations in Silicon Valley outsource um, what they call the cleaning jobs, which like to clean up what's on social media. Uh, they they outsource that job to people in Manila, and this cleanup job involves um, catching things on the various platforms in in um, in the digital world to to capture these images and find them that are overly disturbing or that break some sort of like rules of what is uh supposedly decent and proper and um 
it basically the film shows uh, what these people have to do, how they have to do it, the instructions that they are given by these corporations, and then how these individuals cope with this job. It's it's a very powerful film because it shows um, different all the different aspects of this process. It, it shows how certain corporations, they get to define what should on, in some cases, you know, it, it's based on what they are told by, by governments and, and other corporations, what they're told, what's proper, what's not proper, what should be seen, what should not be seen on social media. And in, in other ways, it's, you know, it makes us question sort of the limits the definitions of, of what is proper, what is not, who gets to decide that, when is it censorship? So I think the film is quite brilliant in the way that it brings us all of these different aspects of this process of cleaning up the digital world. Yeah, it's a very wide-reaching doc, and I think it's it's most effective when it's talking about the the effects that a lot of these um, content moderators have after witnessing hours and months of really horrific and and gruesome things and it's also fascinating in the sense that social media has become such an integral part of people's lives and especially something like facebook where people don't question what they're seeing or who allows them to see it like there's an interesting component to this film where it talks about for example issues of art and journalism and how nudity is a violation of the company's facebook and a lot of these um tech companies their code of conduct or not code of conduct but um, ethical code of what can be seen but some of these things are like legitimate pieces of art or legitimate news stories that just happen to have a naked child in it or what have you and that's being deemed as you know unsuitable for for these social media sites but yet we're seeing a lot of stuff seep through that is unhealthy and some stuff which are impacting elections and changing the way people think so it's in many ways i feel like this film is something that you know facebook and a lot of these companies probably wish was not out there because it does not put their practices and th- their companies in a good light. No, absolutely. I think that's also what's great about the film is that it is bringing this into the foreground, this issue, because we, I never thought about the fact that uh, there was someone, in a sense, curating what I was seeing on Facebook. I knew that every once in a blue moon someone would post something and then, you know, they would then make a comment about how their content was revealed. And in fact, it was an artist who just posted a photo of some of an artwork. And and then somehow that got deleted. And yet there were other things that I found questionable or other things that were misleading or uh, just outright lies. Yeah. And those rules seem to be very um, loose depending on the region. So they show examples of like how... Facebook will curb content based on whatever the law is in particular countries. So countries that have dictatorships, they essentially just cave to whatever the dictator demands because at the end of the day, they're a business. They, you know, they're a tech company. They want to have their product in as many phones and websites as possible. But then you also have the question of 
people like um, Durte in the Philippines, who right. they use the example of how he has he ran a whole campaign on essentially the war on drugs, but he's taken that to the extreme and used certain levels of force that are beyond reasonable, and he gleefully does not care what the general people think, and they show how. He right, used right. a popular artist, um, I guess the, the equivalent of the Philippines version of the Pussycat Dolls, to use her power and social media influence to essentially become a mouthpiece that constantly praises him. And even when she's performing at shows, she's pausing to cheer on Dirte and telling the audience, isn't he so great? And, you know, in many ways, he's using her to brainwash the masses. You know, and that's like another aspect of how tricky these things are, and especially with content moderators. And as we've seen with the U.S., with the Russians using social media to manipulate elections and manipulate people's thoughts in terms of what they're seeing and who sees what, all that is stuff that's getting by content moderators. That's stuff that's being deemed acceptable. So it's a very slippery slope that a lot of these companies have found themselves in, and that they, they have no clear sign of any exit plan, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when when the film does shift focus to the individuals, they are affected. And then how does that affect their decision making? Someone may let something go by that someone else wouldn't. And so it, this whole, the whole issue of censorship, I mean, it's an age-old issue. It's a giant issue. And um, it is disturbing. And, and the film is really powerful in the way that it, it does somehow manage to give you the, the breadth of this issue, but also in a way that we can digest it. Okay, so that was The Cleaners, and it's showing on Sunday, April 7th. And now we're going to move on to the next, uh, the closing night film, which is Roll Red Roll. And it's a true crime documentary that actually goes beyond the headlines and truly uncovers what went on and what is still going on in many communities um, across uh, at least the Western world especially in America. And what happened was uh, there was a vicious rape that happened and it involved um, some of the football players of this uh, small community where, you know, the high school football team meant, means a lot to everyone. Um, and uh, so the, the it's there seemed there was a cover up. There was this, you know, uh, incident that did happen as this young girl was the victim of this vicious rape. Um, there was a sort of a, a cover-up. People, you know, weren't talking. Uh, you know, that that's, that cone of silence went over everything. Um, but, in fact, a true crime blogger, she ended up being the whistleblower, um, she picked up on it and started piecing things together using uh, social media, what was posted on social media about it. And it follows her and actually the the police department in the community trying to piece these things together. So in that, like, if you love cr true crime, and even if you don't, it's just a fascinating um, film in the way that it pieces all these details together to give not only the picture of what happened, but to actually reveal, because a big cover-up was happening. So in revealing this, I, I, in fact, felt this great sense of relief, you know, as, I guess, uh, as a, uh, watching so many stories of rapes and sexual assaults and, and harassment being covered up, 
it was such a, a relief to see um, that there was something, you know, there was some retribution going to happen, uh, that it was it, all the details were coming to light of what happened. And uh, so, and it's just a fascinating, uh, you know, it, the way it was edited, the way that it was put together. I think this is like a really strong film. It's by Nancy Schwartzman, a U.S. filmmaker. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as, as well. It... In many ways, thinking back to it, it's also disturbing because we see a lot of that today in other things. So this is a, a tale of a town that has had a history of, of rape culture and not even realizing it. And when they're essentially called out on it, their instinct is to attack the victim, attack the blogger, especially using the same tools that got those kids in trouble social media to try and bring down anyone who dare question the football team or you know the notion that it was anyone's fault outside of the of the victim Jane Doe but when you think of our society now and you look at social you look at Twitter you look at Instagram what do you see you see a lot of people trying to intimidate and bash and tear down via those public forums and doing everything everything in their power to and it's and it's so prevalent now and you think you take that and you know a microcosm of it is this town in Steubenville Ohio and it's a cautionary tale for us all you know the cautionary tale about rape culture uh, cautionary tale about the way our children are using social media it's a cautionary tale the way adults are using social media it's a cautionary tale on how adults are enabling kids into doing bad things because they've essentially done it themselves all their life and they they don't see it as as being wrong i know you know it's such a an important story of the lack of self-awareness the lack of self-awareness of these parents and you see it like you said in in modern times like there are other stories there's a story in toronto about saint michael's college and what was the first response from the parents about uh, you know, allegations of, of sexual assault, the first response was to protect their children, right? Instead of, talk, there's no discussion, there was no public forum, there was no what's going on here, there was just, uh, nope, not my kid, watching this film, and you hear the, the victim blaming, and you hear the reasons that they're blaming her, what was she wearing, why, was she, why would she get drunk? Why would she go to a party and get drunk when there's a bunch of guys there? Still, like that's an archaic, scary thing to keep repeating because it's wrong. It's the younger generation that's repeating it as well. But they're repeating it because no one's correcting them. And they're, in fact, you you hear in the, the documentary, you hear from residents of the town, other residents, and they're saying this. They're, that's what they're saying. They're saying, like, we think that we've moved on to this era. We think that we've moved on with Me Too and other movements to move forward. But we forgot that not everybody came with us. Yeah, and some of the people that are essentially protecting those students or at least questioning the girl are, as we find out later, individuals who experienced rape themselves. Like there's mm -hmm. a whole slew of women in that town, young and old, that have been victims of rape and have been essentially conditioned into never speak of it 
and in many ways, as, as someone person said that, you know, a, a rape victim is a person who wears a mask, you know, so they're essentially putting on the mask of everything is okay and never addressing it and, and acting as if acting the same way that other individuals are active in terms of victim shaming, because, you know, the, they want to be seen as being regular. But once the floodgate opens and you see just how many women in that community have been sexually assaulted, it's, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And the other the other scary thing about it is it brings out how uh, people rally around an institution. They want so desperately. It's a beloved institution, their high school, in their small town that everybody went to, and the football team that every second guy was on or every guy that wanted, you know, that could was on that team, you know, in terms of the older generation, like generations of men, And they were heroes and they still want that institution to be a place where their team is a group of heroes, you know, and and how the adults wanted it so badly that they enabled uh, such terrible things to happen. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite disturbing, but so eye opening. So that was Roll Red Roll. That's the closing night film of um, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. And uh, the closing night is on Wednesday, April 10th. But you have one more. Yes, there was uh, one other film that I watched from the festival, and it's called Life Without Basketball. And it's a U.S. documentary that follows um, Muslim-American basketball phenom Bill Keyes Abdul Qadir. And she was uh, she's a woman that from, I guess, high school and through college was just breaking records. Uh, she was a star that looked to be headed straight to a, a pro basketball career. But as she was just about ready to leave college, she found out that FIBA, which is like the um, international association that governs basketball for both men and women, has a rule that you can't wear any headgear while playing professionally. And so that is a direct her wearing a hijab is a direct violation of that rule and this is a rule that apparently was on the books no one knows for how long because many people who have been in the league for years and associate never knew this rule existed but she became like the, the the person that helped expose this rule so the film follows her um the three for i guess a three-year period and that's when she's found out that she can't play and she's now trying to figure out what to do with her life because for her basketball was was everything it wasn't just that she was good at it it helped her to bond and connect with her father when he was going through serious drug addiction it it gave her a sense of identity and purpose and now we see her out of college and she doesn't know what to do with herself she becomes a motivational speaker speaking to other young muslim women trying to encourage and empower them she even teaches a or coaches a team that i guess plays in like a a church league of sorts but through her experience over these three years you get a sense of not only how sports and religion are are linked even when they're not supposed to be but also how the muslim american experience has gotten worse now that Trump is in power. So it's a really fascinating look at a young woman that is trying to stay positive and still trying to maintain a sense of dignity and the power that she had built for herself while essentially this institution has stripped her of the things she loved the most. Wow. 
It's, it sounds like a, a story of a like a really strong individual, someone who like lost power in a way but found a different way. Yeah, and and even as things evolve, you 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 see her struggling because she wants to to give strength to Muslim girls everywhere and really be uh, someone that they can look up to. And at the same time, she's dealing with her own inner turmoil. So in many ways, she's trying to keep a strong face in one sense, and in another area, she's she's really kind of lost. Like you know, when someone strips the thing that you love, your sense of identity, how do you overcome that? And that's what the film is really about. It's it's an interesting film. Wow, it sounds great. Okay, so that that um, that's the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, it's the sixteenth annual festival and it's uh it's running from april the 3rd to the 10th at the tiff bell Lightbox. so please go to tiff.net for all the details i just want to end on a happy joyous musical note i saw this um this incredibly alive and vibrant and very current film about uh the uh, one of the most famous jazz record labels and um, it's called Blue Note Records, Beyond the Notes. And Blue Note Records was the place. That was the place where every great jazz star was. It was um, started in 1939 by two German-Jewish refugees, Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe. So, you know, I call them the Lion and the Wolf. They started, um, they started this this enterprise and funnily enough, uh, even though that's the lion and the wolf, they were apparently uh, the most uh, loving, nurturing uh, producer type people uh, who gathered just the best and the best came to them because of the way that they allowed artists to work. Um, if you think that this is, you know, uh, Oh, it's, it's a, you know, boring old, old people, music, jazz kind of uh, film. Uh, it's not because it very much uh, draws a through line between the, the history, which it goes through very lovingly and very fascinating. Like the, this film moves, you know, it's one of those great music docs. There's a group of newer artists that are playing jazz and called the Blue Note All-Stars. And they also do their own thing on the label. They are the ones, plus the great artists, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter, who, you know, were from the, the old era of jazz. So all of them lovingly cre recreate this history, uh, going through with uh, their own recollections and telling the story while we're watching images uh, that are archival images that are, you know, not never seen before kind of images, you know, Miles Davis making jokes, uh, which if you know Miles Davis, he's not known for making jokes, you know, he's known for yelling, you know, things like that. That and, and people uh, just uh, going over that. So there's, you know, the archival footage. Plus, uh, one of the partners, Francis Wolf, he 
was someone who would uh, they, they would have both hang around while people were you know come, trying to come up with their music and and uh, going through a process and they were welcomed by all the guys because they were they were such loving people and so supportive of them so while everyone was doing their thing Francis Wolf was able to take these very candid beautiful intimate portrait uh, pictures that were, ended up being like portraits of people and so we're watching, you know, those kind of images and um, and we hear these people talking. One of them, I must say, is uh, also beyond the jazz people. There's a hip hop, a current hip hop producer and musician called Terrace Martin. And he is one of the people that, that talks throughout it. And you you start to hear not only why it was a great place for musicians. And the thing that makes it current is that there's very much of a, in the film, there's very much of a stress, the pain of going through things like, you know, segregation, civil rights movement, the politics of the time. You know, there was a certain point in history where people, young people didn't have access to musical instruments that, that Programs were cut in schools, and so then you start hearing from people like a tribe called Quest's Ali Shahid Muhammad, and he, you know, he was talking about, and you hear Terrace Martin's voice, and they're they're talking about how well everyone had a turntable and everyone had their their parents' old record, and how suddenly that hip hop started by sampling a lot of jazz. And in fact, Blue Note took advantage of that. But I'm very excited about this 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 film. It's it's like for music lovers, this is this is a real hit. It, it sounds like it's an exciting film that blends music and history in a unique way. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's a lot of fun to watch. And it's just mm, it's like a movie for the soul. So it started its run already, but it's running into the weekend. So uh, you know. But get your tickets. Go to hotdogs.ca because it's playing at the Hot Dog Cinema. So that's it for Frameline for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time.